Welcome to another edition of Baffling Combustions with Andrew McCarran, Sam Truitt, and Sparrow as they plumb the mundane and cosmic strange. I have, I, you know, I have no vices, but I, uh, I do drink kombucha almost every morning now because my wife makes kombucha and I think it has some tiny amount of caffeine and a little bit of alcohol in it. And uh, for a long time, I didn't drink it. And then I thought that's really being absurdly puritanical. My wife makes this drink that theoretically has all sorts of health giving attributes, tastes good. She gets better and better at making it. So, you know, in the hopes that it does something, or even if it doesn't, I I do I do drink that, so I'm a, almost as bad as a normal person now. <laughs> when I was living in New York on 35th Street, I used to grow the kombucha, and um, grow it. you know, yeah. yeah, does isn't that what Violet does? She I makes so. her own. I don't think she uses that word grow. Yeah. Well, the the mushroom grows and then it calves every uh, I thought it was every two weeks. Um, and I should hmm. start doing it again. I should get in touch with uh, Violet and get yeah, she can give you some of her mother. Right. I think it's called the mother. See, yeah. I did want to say, you know, I think there's a circularity to health. Um, you know, mm. we're a circulating system, and I'm. But I also wanted to say, like, relative to coffee or paring one's nails or eating food or taking in visual impressions. All of these are modes of communication, I feel, with, mm. with my body, you know, where oh, through having these connections with it is a form of communion, is a form of communication, is a form of, of call and response because your body is a big feedback, you know, produces a lot of feedback in which there's mm. a lot of information. I think esoterically yeah, I'm, said I'm, that we're born with everything we need for this life, that there's nothing we need to, um, you know, there's nothing we need to augment with our bodies, that we are born with, with what we need for this life. Does that make sense? It reminds me of this thing that's in my book about Abraham Lincoln, where Abraham Lincoln says something like, if there were a group of people that had no hands and feet but only had mouths then it would make sense and there were other people that had only hands and feet and no mouths then it would make sense that some people should labor and other people should benefit from their labor you know that there should be a class of laborers and a class of really kind of capitalists that uh, receive the benefits of the laborers but he said since everybody has a mouth and everybody has hands and feet then we all should be the no no man should work for another. No man should have to surrender his labor to another person. It's kind of a proto-Marxist idea, I thought. Huh. And the and the mouth has to do with consumption or eating or speaking. I think that was the idea. Like if, if there were some people that could only eat but not work, and other people could only work but oh, not eat, then it would make sense that you know one group would grow the food for the eaters 
I think I may have misremembered this whole metaphor. I mean, I, I do like think that. that one of the signal causes for in hell is the mm. separation between our, you know, Descartian mind-body split, right? That that mm. creates an impasse to that circularity, mm. which perhaps is one of mm. the attributes of good health. I, that was my mm. sense um, in terms of uh, academia and a lot of the academics that I met, certainly. What do you mean? Well, they see, many of them had very active minds, but um, poor physical health. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe from just being too sedentary or over-investing yeah. over in the life of the mind to the detriment of the body. Mm, yeah, not, not having any physical regime, yeah. not doing physical exercise. I had a friend who referred to a phenomenon as um, a phenomenon along these lines as academic body. Academic <laughs> a body of neglect. He said it's a body of neglect. It's been neglected. Mm, That's what he the greatest erogenous zone for these individuals is the mind. People that can only, like guys, that can only fall in love with really brainy women. In relation to the health of the mind, I realized that, you know, in our last session, I had was able to retrospectively identify at least one misrepresentation of reality. And that is, in my discussion of negative capability, I actually confused it with Fitzgerald, F. Scott Fitzgerald, saying that the capacity to hold two oh, yeah? contradictory thoughts in your mind uh, at the same time and still be able to function is the sign of a high intelligence or some, you know, something like that, which he, you know, speaks of in his essay, The Crack Up. And I, and I wanted oh. to say, I thought that would be a good follow on to this to sessions on health. And then this idea of negative capability is sort is different. And that is Keats speaks of, you know, this walk that he had with a friend of his and a disputation that they entered into, out of which arose his idea of negative capability, which has to do with the capacity to be in uncertainties or mysteries or mm. ambiguities or mm. doubts. Um, and, and this is the mm. phrase, without any irritable reaching after fact and reason. In other words, mm. the ability to be open to experience, you know, prior to mind, say, or prior to analysis, or that it points toward what I have capsulized in a, in a phrase, there is something in me that is smarter than me because it doesn't think. <laughs> and also the phrase, that, the word that comes to my mind is to be slightly lost, you know, to... Um the ability to be to be lost actually in a literal sense too to actually take a walk and get lost and not know where you are i think is is a, a very healthy state personally right it's to wander yeah to what yeah. is that word the uh, the flaneur is right isn't it in flaneur, french yes. the flaneur yeah. is sort of a guy who's just uh, walking down the street uh doesn't know where he's going not going anywhere in particular yeah or as Thoreau in his essay, Walking, the Saunterer. Uh -huh. Yes, which is sort of where we started Yeah, with that essay, right? Is that the first one we ever did? I think it can was. I, mm. Can I ask, what, 
Can we each share a health-inducing habit? I'd like to start. Okay. 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 Well, you know, and it should be something that we 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 would do that I don't know. Um, perhaps we discovered on our own. Perhaps it was introduced by someone else, but it's stuck. It's become habituated. And for me, um, I think that my physical health, and I would extend this to you know, other dimensions of health, mental health, spiritual health, is aided by my practice of going out in all weather, mm. lightly dressed for a walk or a light jog, regardless of whether it's five below zero or 95 degrees. Mm. I think being out in the element in all seasons, I think um, it requires a level of circulation mm. and respiration that um, is health inducing. And I, I believe that that's part of the reason that I don't get sick very often, knock on wood. Mm. And mm. Uh, to my dying day, I think I'm going to um, insist that there's some health inducing quality to this practice. But part of it is you're, you're not very, uh, you're not dressed very uh, heavily. Yeah, I won't, yeah, I'll go out like if it's snowing and it's um, 10 p.m., I'll wear a sweatshirt and a hat, a pair of sweatpants. Mm. But I'm not going to overdress that i want to feel the cold i want to be able oh, to I take see. the cold into my lungs and the same is true if it's um extremely hot i hmm. I, I believe that there is some medicinal health inducing um consequence sounds like a very precise uh, immune uh, system strengthener to me it's, i don't know for a fact but that's the what kind of thing it seems like yeah and i discussed it with my doctor but he just just gave me a quizzical look. <laughs> <laughs> he's probably a sign that he's a good doctor. <laughs> he didn't respond. For these runs, yeah. how long do you go? I mean, do you does does the length of the run matter? Is there a yeah, sweet really. spot, or would you just to if you're time pressed, would you run for ten minutes if definitely you didn't have enough time, or yeah. Definitely. And I've been running less. I mean, I'll go for like a 15 minute. It's, it's, it's more, I can go for a walk. Even mm -hmm. if it's 20 minutes, it's fine. Just you know, what I'll do. We're at 101st Street and Broadway as I'll um, run down to the Hudson River and back. And I, I just, I want to feel that cold wash over. I, I want to feel, if it's hot, I want to feel that too. I want to sweat. You know, you're not going for the aerobic uh, 20 minute uh, threshold. Not really. It's I, I'm, not, I'm not. If I, you know, maybe to a degree, but not consistently. There was a point when I lived in the city where I would start started doing a 20 minute walk obsessively, you know, on walking on streets, you know, walking on sidewalks. Next, and then you know, I would sometimes get to a an intersection, and I didn't want to stop walking. So sometimes I would turn around and go back the the way I'd come, and then approach it again. Like I, I wanted to keep aerobic moving at all times and sometimes I got narrowly uh, missed by cars I was like this is gonna kill me this aerobic uh, you know obsession uh, because I'm gonna walk right into traffic because I don't want to stop walking was there a health benefit did you did you feel I couldn't tell but uh, my friend Josie was very impressed and she said it was the most impressive I have lots of exercises I do every day like in a way all I do is exercises and um, uh, she that was the one that really she thought was the best So 20 minutes 20 yeah. minutes of walking. Yeah Now I don't do it anymore because I have my bunion problem. 
Uh, once in a while, in the, when it's warm out, I'll walk for 20 minutes on uh, grass. Very rarely, but once in a while. Barefoot. Barefoot, exactly. You're, you're big into the bare feet, correct? I'm a barefoot. Uh, I mean, I'm famous for being barefoot, you know, in various, mostly as poet, as a poet. I'm like a barefoot poet. Do you, you know, when I give a reading and if I don't, if I'm not barefoot, people are like, what's going on? Do you feel that that's health inducing for you? Uh, I don't think of it. I've never thought about it. I don't see it that way. Well, I hate shoes and I feel like they hurt my feet. Possibly I just don't have enough money to get really good shoes. I mean, that's my biggest regret in life. Maybe I've said this already here. Basically in life, if you want to be a bohemian, you should live on no money except you should buy good shoes and go to the dentist. This is my advice to young aspiring uh, dropouts. <laughs> you know, because you can really hurt your feet by going to these cheapo stores like Payless. Yeah, right. My understanding is that being barefoot on um, open ground, that is not paved or surfaced ground, and mm. of having that connection to the earth about 15 or maybe it's 20 minutes a day is supposed to be very beneficial for regathering yourself elementally. Yeah, the underlying esoteric understanding is that the materia of the earth is itself inherently healing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, actually in my essay that I was uh, going to give uh, about how to be healthy, I was saying to me, the perfect diet is the traditional Chinese diet. I mean, I don't know this for a fact, but this is my opinion, uh, which is something like 60% grains, 30% vegetables, 10% meat, or maybe even less meat, or maybe tofu instead of meat, or bean sprouts, but mostly grains, and then 30% vegetables. And the, what you want to do is you want to eat as much as you can plants. And, and as I was writing this, I thought, you know, health has a lot to do with plants. Health is a gift that plants give us. Uh, and I think that, go that goes for a walking on the ground, too, walking on grass, you know, walking on plants. The, mm. the plant uh, buoyancy enters into us. And, and, you know, I mean, I don't maybe it's okay to eat meat. I don't know. I don't do it, so I'm not sure. Mm. But it feels to me that plants have this intention to help us. Mm. And also in terms of that sense of health as being circuitous, there's, I recall, Sparrow, you're talking about the trees, and we talked about yeah. the fact that trees and other green things give forth oxygen, mm -hmm. and that we're in a relationship with the biota of the planet in which we're breathing together, you know, we breathe out carbon dioxide and the plants breathe in the dioxide and then breathe out oxygen. Yeah, so that seems to make sense. Hallelujah. I myself, when I get up in the morning, I do something that I feel has benefit to my health, which is the purification of the elements. And that oh. involves doing nine breathings of a particular sort, and then of a certain um, evocation of space, hmm. air, water, fire, and earth. And then, you know, 
call up all of these elements and their associated colors and then form a kind of structure inside of myself in which all of these elements are integrated with my body. Mm. Mm. How do you do it? Uh, I usually do it sitting down, you know, just sitting down. It's like a meditation, kind of? Well, it's a, it's a, the breathing is very particular to open up your channels. And then mm -hmm. there's mantra, so ah. spoken mantra. Yeah, and also a very simple visualization as well. It's it's not pranayama. It's not the yoga breathing. No, no, it's open breathing, but it involves moving your arms in a certain way to open up the oh, yeah? open up the channels and open up your central channel. Actually, what is your central channel? The uh, spinal column. <laughs> yeah, more or less. I mean. You know, we have these nadis in our bodies, you know, that is our energetic body and is connected to the chakras. And so mm. the, the central column or the, you know, the connection between your perineum and to your fontanel. But it's more like a kind of esoteric center than a physical center. It's like it's exists a, more spiritual realm, exact sort of. It's a it's a little past like the meat and is more like the energy that animates the meat. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we have chakras in my we use chakras in my I mean I have a secret meditation but uh but my group kind of believes in chakras. So I'm a little bit sort of conscious, somewhat conscious of my chakras. All my problems are always in my third chakra. Well, maybe not always. What is the third chakra again? Third chakra is like uh, the well in our group is the belly button, somewhere in the belly. So you have gut ailments, gut issues? Oh, I don't know that I have ailments. I mean, I was long ago, you know, when I was like 21, I was diagnosed with an ileocecal valve problem, which is I think like the valve. Now it hurts now that I'm talking about it. The valve between the small intestine and the large intestine? I don't even remember, but something. Or possibly between the stomach and the intestine. I'm going to pray Hopefully. for your ileocecal valve. I appreciate that. Put it and on I my will, prayer list. If you had any problems, I pray for them, but you seem to be fine. Perfect. I have some issues with like a reflux occasionally. Oh, yeah, me too, uh, occasionally. That's related to coffee. That's yes. what my doctor said. He said, oh, this is this is just a case of drinking too much coffee, that the acidity is um, pushing stuff up. If mm. you drink less coffee, it will go away. And did you no. try? <laughs> <laughs> but I may yeah. if it continues to persist. I mean, one of the things when I was writing about health is I think like everything pure is dangerous, like uh, refined sugar, anything white that you eat salt. I, my wife and I have become big uh, salt connoisseurs, probably salt snobs. You know, I don't like that chemically pure salt. I don't think it tastes good. Kind of, to me, it kind of ruins food. Like I've gotten to the point where I can only eat like Irish sea salt and salt that comes from a salt mine in Utah or Himalayan pink salt, which maybe is a is fraudulent, but at least it looks real. I like salt with colors, subtle colors in it. And, uh, and sugar, you know, I think it's good to eat maple syrup, something brown. And then friends, I have friends that are like, have PhDs in uh, biology that are saying to me, well, obviously, white sugar is the same as honey. And it's like, 
only American, only Western rationalists can prove to themselves that something that's a chemical white thing that's invented in a factory is exactly the same as something that bees produce with their rear ends going back millions of years. Like to them, that's, oh yeah, they're identical. So, you know, I think anything pure is is suspect and drugs too, you know, cocaine, all sorts of drugs that are pure as opposed to like drugs that are... Um, that grow out of the ground. Mushrooms and marijuana, I think, are the best drugs. And probably, and maybe ayahuasca. I don't know, I'm not that advanced. What's the drop on, what kind of salt did Ruth turn into when she... <laughs> no, uh, it's not Ruth, it's uh, oh, Lot's, Lot's wife. Who Lot's I think wife. may have what no was name. Her name, though? I think she was unnamed. I don't know. We'll have to do a podcast about it, but I have a, a sneaking suspicion she's unnamed. What kind of salt? Well, probably, uh, I mean, I'm no expert, but uh, I would think they didn't have, you know, uh, chemical salt back then. She had to be some kind of organic, like a salt lick, like you put out for a deer to lick. But I will tell you my uh, health giving practice, since I didn't get to go, is uh, what comes to mind, I have this new hobby, I don't know what the word is for it, uh, game. So in my kitchen, we have a box for recycle, recyclables. So in the morning when I'm taking the dishes out of the dishwasher, out of the dish dryer, uh, if there's something that needs to be recycled, I'll stand towards the sink with my back to the box and I'll throw the uh, butter, plastic butter container over my shoulder and try to get it in the box you know, without even looking. And then it usually fails, and then it falls to the ground, and then I sort of laugh. For some reason, it strikes me as very funny that I do this. And I try three or four times. Eventually, I get it in. I have a sense of satisfaction. And, um, you know, I'm getting better and better. You know, at first, I, I just did it close up. You know, I was just two feet away. Then I went further and further back. Then I started doing it backwards. Now I sometimes throw two at once. So I'm, I'm working out different sort of variations of things fly through the air at different speeds. A lid goes really different than a container of blueberries. <laughs> so, so Spiro, the health-inducing aspect of that practice has to do with connecting to your balance, proprioception, coordination? Well, yeah, I mean, I think the thing that I like about it is just it's funny and uh, kind of absurd. And uh, and then it and then also it was it was something that I was never able to do. You know how you're somewhere in a classroom or something and somebody balls up their paper and throws it into the wastebasket basket from across the room certain kind of person will always get it from 40 feet away. And it's like, whoa, that guy, Louie, he's amazing. Like, I would never be that person. So I'm slowly kind of becoming that person. So it's kind of healing something in me, a sense of insufficiency, uh, inferiority that I'd never be good at throwing yogurt uh, containers into boxes. <laughs> and, it, and it also is connected to laughter. And we spoke of the yeah. healing through laughter. And I think also we'd be remiss if we didn't mention the importance of new hobbies 
new practices. Yeah, I'm 67 years old, and I just started a new Apparently, um, neurologically, that's um, very important for uh, uh, neurological health, that not, not to be habituated in the same patterns and practices and perpetuity, but to introduce new things, um, new migration patterns, new ways of throwing out the trash even, new, um, new commutes. New modes of trans getting between A and B. Mm. Ah, yeah. and, and also, yeah. I think, you know, sort of following on that, new avenues to being lost, to getting lost in wandering. Yeah. And, <laughs> you know, being a beginner again. Definitely. Yeah. Getting loster. You know, like yesterday I got lost, today I got even loster. Tomorrow I'm going to get more lost. You know, like have a kind of goal out of it. Which sparrow would you write about? In your um, essay on aging that was published oh, yeah? in the Sun magazine, right? Going out into the woods and getting lost. At, oh, yeah? Do I talk about Yeah, you mentioned that as, um, as, a, oh. as something that positive you as you get older, I think. And also, I, I think maybe I talk about uh, forest bathing. I don't know if I've discussed that here in these uh, podcasts, but um, it's some Japanese phrase, you know, translation of a Japanese phrase, this, this idea that just being in the forest, bathing in the forest, is supposedly they've done all these studies in Japan, I guess, that it lowers your heart rate, you know, it gives less tension. It can all be, it's like meditation. Just being in the forest is really uh, wholesome for you, which is kind of logical because probably what we were like programmed to, to do, to be, that's where we're supposed to be. Yeah, we did talk about this when we... I forget, but a couple podcasts ago. But I did want to read this. This I was reading the paper just before we started, and this was a. Uh, it's in the Hudson Valley One. That's our new local paper, and it's this little uh, notice. It says, "Virtual read with dogs." The Gardner Library will hold its Read with Dogs program virtually on Saturday, November fourteenth, from ten thirty to eleven thirty a.m. Beginning and struggling readers sign up for a 15-minute time slot to read to certified therapy dogs via Zoom. Come read to Fletcher. A relaxed, stress-free environment supports children's learning. Please sign up ahead of time. Spaces are limited. So you're like reading, I guess you're reading children's books to dogs. And the therapy dog is like in a, you're looking at the Zoom camera the, 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 on your screen. There's this dog listening with rapt attention to you, reading to it. And, yeah. you know, I was just thinking, like, this is one of my new theories that's connected to my uh, throwing recyclables in the box uh, hobby. Is you know, There's something about doing something that's absurd in itself that's, that's health-inducing. Hmm. In mentioning dogs, it did occur to me that one thing that I have is a dog. In fact, we have three dogs. Yeah. But I have one dog, this, um, I guess he's a pit bull, you know, a large pit bull. And being with him and, and uh, like uh, listening to him. The way he, mm. when, I'm, when I've got myself pressed up against him and we're really together, and the hmm. quality of communication through kind of grunting to each other, and also <laughs> of being, um, you know, chest, you know, being torso to torso with him and having our hearts kind of rhythmatize together. 
um, mm. is a profound mm. source of healing, you know, which is inimical to health, mm. right? Because, I mean, mm. you know, health is part of a, a, a balance, at any rate, deeply healing. Definitely. Big, uh, proponent. Yeah, of, that's nice. Yeah, our symbiosis with cats and dogs. You know, we have five cats right now. Remember, really? remember Sparrow's memory that Martin Buber traced oh, yeah. back to that encounter with his friend's cat and being in physical proximity with the cat and exchanging um, eye contact and mm. feeling that something mm. luminous opened up in that encounter. And we've been, uh, Lisa. So Sophia and I have been going to Central Park North over the past week and feeding birds by um, putting bird seed in our hands and the chickadees, the warblers, how, how is that pronounced? The war what? War warblers? The type of bird. Warblers? Warblers and chickadees will land in your hand wow. and maintain eye contact and pick, <laughs> up, pick up the seeds they want and fly away. And it's it's all very mystical. It's um, It's really... Transfixing and, and where, where is that? What in the what, north in woods of Central Park? So, um, the wooded part of the park north of um, 100th Street between 100 and 110th Street. Okay, on your side, on the west side, on the west side, absolutely. Because the east side has a big pond, I think. Yes, so it's um, it's next contiguous to that pond. But just today, as we were feeding the chickadees up. A red-tailed hawk landed close to us. Yesterday, we saw a beautiful owl, very large owl. Wow. Um, it's It's been remarkable, and it's so health-inducing. We come back in a different sort of place physically. Yeah. It's like my wife and I took this walk in Woodstock yesterday. I'm taking all these hikes, you know, because of uh, the quarantine. It's sort of like the only uh, entertainment around here. And uh, there's a place called something like the Thorn Property, Thorn, T-H-O-R-N. It used to belong to a family called Thorn. And it was donated to some kind of nature preserve organization. There's woods, you walk through it, then there's an apiary, a little apiary protected with a solar-powered electric fence. First solar-powered electric fence I ever saw which I guess has got to be for the bears to prevent the bears from getting in <clears throat> around this little, uh, you know, these few beehives. And then past that is a woods. And my wife and I went into the woods and then we came upon the wing of an animal, the wing of a bird that attached to some bones. And then next to it, or like six inches away, was a little skull. And uh, my wife uh, took pictures of it. I guess maybe a coyote or a bear ate this. Uh, you know, my wife thought maybe it was a pheasant. I thought it looked like a hawk because you can see like the muscularity of the wing. For me, what's most resonant from your experience, Sparrow, with Violet is the bees, is the apiary. Mm -hmm. um, I've felt a deep, connection to bees as a manifestation of health mm. uh, as, as a metaphor but also practically speaking and sonically speaking um, you know in mm. which you have a structure in which there's a lot of wandering mm. you know these bees go out and visit different places mm. and collect nectar mm. and you know do the whole dance and then they come back into a hive that's a highly 
self-aware almost, but highly intelligent structure. You know, it's very compartmentalized and uh, also involves a lot of getting close to each other. You know, mm. the bees live, you know, wing to wing yeah. in the hive. So anyway, I think that that's a certain structure for health, you know, where you have that outwardness of going out mm. and then returning and coming back and um, the vacillation between symmetry, you know, the symmetry of the combs of the hive and then the asymmetry and possibility of, you know, the landscape and of the communication all throughout. Yeah, and they do these little dances for to each other. I was reading mm -hmm. about them. There's different types of dances that they do. So, you know, some are just kind of simple dances that tell you something yeah. is very near the hive, yeah. hive and others but, are more complex dances. Yeah, and I think that also dance, you know, we talked about laughter, but dance and also the oh, self-perception yeah. and the moderate interaction with the world as a form of dance, um, you know, and, and if as soon as you evoke dance, you have like a real corporeal, real sense of being in your body and inhabiting your meat that really is beneficial, you know, really does make one feel harmonized, you know, which I guess some sort of balance is at the heart of health, right? Mm. And also there's an aesthetics to dance. Yeah, I'm, I'm a big believer in dance. In, my, in that essay that you read, uh, Andrew, about how to age gracefully or whatever I called it, um, there's kind of a theme, as I recall, of dance. That uh, it's something, it's one of my uh, weird little hobbies is as I'm walking through the house, I'll try to do a little dance. Oh, right. And I think that that can be applicable throughout our lives. Oh, yeah. I mean, at, at the higher level, I think life should really, like, literally be a dance. I mean, it's it's one problem with the New Age is it kind of created all these metaphors that ruins all language. But, mm. you know, like, oh, life should be a dance. But, I mean, life should literally be a dance. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah, literally. Yeah, practically. Yeah, find a way. and and then. Which, which I don't know if I talked about this yet, but the importance of balance. Like my uh, father-in-law, uh, he, he uh, had terrible vertigo. He was a workaholic his whole life, and he would work every day, work on Christmas, work on New Year's. You know, he would maybe come back to the family for the Christmas dinner or something, but he would even work on those days. He was like addicted to work, apparently. And he had his own business. He had an insurance agency. So, I mean, he had a lot to do, but he also like loved to work. And then suddenly around 2016, no, 2008, he got vertigo and, uh, and he just couldn't move. He couldn't leave the couch. He couldn't do anything anymore. And it was kind of destroyed him. And, and then he sort of lost his will to live and he sort of died. How old was he? Wow. When How old? He was 80, maybe? Somewhere around that. I mean, one thing I would say is that there, in terms of health, there's certain things that we have absolutely no control over, mm. you know, like acquiring vertigo. Yeah. <laughs> and some people have certain organs that are in disrepair and there's nothing you can do about it. It's the way you're born and just but anomalies of birth and accident. Can I say something? I did, you know, I recently lost 
a dear friend of mine, Jill, oh, Shapiro, yeah. Jill Shapiro, who um, was a historian, historian of um, labor history, mm. and uh, received his PhD from Columbia in the 1960s and mm. taught at a number of colleges and then later in life um, moved into the independent school world. That's where I got to know him at Trinity School. He also taught for a few years at Dalton, but he um, he was in great shape. He's someone who he died at 78, but he walked every day. He did lots of yoga. He kept mm. active intellectually. He uh, mm. he was married with a child. Uh, he had a kid. His wife died. He remarried a wonderful woman. It wasn't like he was um, without a family, without a community. He was an eccentric guy, very interesting. And he recently closed on a house with his wife, the, the first house they owned in Asbury Park, although they moved <laughs> their their apartment here in the Upper West Side, and they were celebrating with friends, and he, he got up, put on his coat, was in the middle of a sentence, and then just died. Of what? No one knows. He just, yeah. he just, just, his wife said he just slid onto the floor in a graceful, in a way that was described <laughs> as graceful, and according mm. to the paramedics, he was, he was done before he hit the ground. Wow. wow. With no that warning sign. And no sickness, uh, other than the fact that last spring he had COVID. Oh, he was diagnosed so. with COVID, but had a very mild. Hmm. So that also is interesting. Like, uh, that at the end he did. He was in a state of dance. Yeah, and 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 the paramedics sang that he died within that gesture. Amazing. He was, yeah. Yeah, but it's mysterious, right? In line with what you were saying, Sam, there must have been some sort of um, abnormality, or I mean, his father had passed on a heart a heart condition, but or I'm sorry, his father died closer to ninety oh. than in his late seventies. So, um, mm-hmm. but his father did everything wrong. Apparently, he was a um, depressed and a heavy drinker and ate a lot of meat. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that was his mistake. Not having any vices. There's the saying that your fate is written on your forehead. Which yeah. means what? Yeah, what is that? It means that your destiny is is a predetermined path. Oh, I see. Um, mm. Yeah. I think somewhere in one of my self-help books, I say uh, you, should, you should celebrate your birthday, but you should also try to intuit what day you're going to die and celebrate that day too, your death day. I don't know. It's hard it's to let go idea, of the yeah. blank check. <laughs> yeah, particularly with my case where everybody keeps telling me, oh, you have great genes, your parents live forever, you're going to live 140 years. Well, you don't know. You, know. you don't know. Yeah. I don't know that everything is genetic. Originally, the way I've been thinking about it lately is that my parents both outlived their ego. You know, which really has a lot to do really what I mean by that was with their relationship to me. You know, because I'm the kind of person who never really got a job. I mean, I worked part-time my whole life. And, you know, I've never really achieved anything by the American standards. And my mother used to lecture me for years about how I should become a, what you are, Andrew, a school teacher, except in the public schools, because, you know, that's more socialistic. But, uh, uh, you know, and, you know, my dad seemed to be quietly ashamed of me that I never, you know, made any money or did anything. And then they got so old, they sort of forgot that people work. 
they forgot that you're supposed to define people by their jobs. And just like I would come to them, play my ocarina for them, and they would say, God, that's so beautiful. Like they could appreciate me on the level that I live, you know, a level of someone who can't really play the ocarina, but has uh, practiced uh, many years at it and has a certain rude uh, ability at it. And, you know, values the 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 idea of just playing a song that you don't know what it is improvising and so they kind of outlive in many ways they outlive their ego but then recently i was thinking no really my dad it's more like he's in this like dialogue or playing a duet with longevity he is learning from longevity some of the things he does like obviously moderation are uh expanding his longevity but he's also listening to longevity itself and learning from longevity and i was thinking like one of the things he's learned from longevity is gratitude he is so grateful he was never he was always kind of a bitter guy bitter you know like recently he was saying to me well you know i never took things very hard and you know i don't like to argue with my dad but i said in a gentle way i said well you were pretty miserable and then he thought about it for a second and he said, you know what I was mad about? I was angry that utopia wouldn't come to earth. You know, mm -hmm. he was angry at communism for failing, in other words. Uh, I, and yeah, now he's kind of outgrown that. Hmm. And now he, you know, he feels still that the world's going to become socialist. But, you know, in a thousand years, 10,000 years, something like that, it's going to be a slow evolution. And he's, he's made his peace with that. And he it just feels immense gratitude. He's just always grateful for his neighbors whom he loves that are so good to him. And, you know, for his, uh, mostly for these aides that work for him, sometimes he gets a little peeved at them. But basically, he just like exude to me, he's very grateful, you know. He's become a big fan of my writing. You he know, read your, does he read your essays online? Uh, no, he doesn't really read stuff online. But, uh, you know, I'll bring him that essay that I just published about my mother in the Sun magazine, mm. and he'll probably of, read it. In terms of health, it does seem as though it may relate to relaxation of ego, mm -hmm. is what I'm hearing you're saying too, Sparrow, in terms of sort of our understanding of this letting go, relaxing, that mm. sense of sense of what what is ego yeah ego is desire isn't it really i mean isn't that what buddhism is teaching us that all uh, suffering comes from desire and mm. that the ego is always wants more what is it there's a bruce springsteen song poor man want to be rich rich man want to be king the king ain't satisfied till he owns everything yeah it's from that song badlands i mean oh. i think that's a pretty good working definition of ego that always wants more and more actually my guru talks about this i was going to say this actually in this uh, conversation that um, my guru says that there's uh, only a finite amount of stuff in the world there's only a finite amount of material wealth in the world the desire to be inordinately wealthy the desire to be a billionaire according to baba to my guru is a mental disease but there's an infinite amount of intellectual and spiritual riches. So the desire to have an endless amount of spiritual riches or, 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 in, or knowledge uh, 
or wisdom is uh, that you can pursue forever. So, you know, you can't own the entire earth. You can't physically own everything, but you could, you can at least aspire to know everything. So, I mean, I think, I guess what I'm saying is, I think Anandamargi sometimes uses this word, kind of an Indian English word, channelize. You channelize the ego so that it ex wants to expand in areas where it's wholesome to expand, like knowledge, rather than areas where it's kind of sick to expand, like power or wealth. Yeah, it's interesting. I connected with the local pet store, the person who works there, Lindsay, mm -hmm. and spontaneously she was talking about health. And mm -hmm. she proposed sort of an interesting model, which I, I'm not sure may be ascribed to her, I'm not sure, is that in terms of health, there's three levels. The first is mechanical, where something goes wrong and you fix it. And then the second level is moral, where certain things are good, these are all good things, and then these other things, oh, they're bad. And that there's something to be gained, you know, by doing good things versus not virtuous things. And then uh, the hmm. third level is understanding health as equilibrium or as balance, hmm. as you said, Sparrow, or hmm. as equanimity and just abiding. I think it seems fairly plausible, but gosh, um, Sparrow, I'm so, it's so great that the manifestation of ego on the part of your father was the you know connected to a utopian dream yeah it's true it was you know he had that ideological uh, disorder <laughs> that he you know he became entirely kind of uh, attached and uh, you know uh, embodied this this uh, revolution you know that's what he wanted to happen i once found this uh index card he typed on that said something like I am ready to give my life for the working class. Something like that. Kind of creepy, almost scary to see your father write that, you know, maybe before you're born. What did he do? But what did he, he do for a living? Did he work in a profession? Well, he uh, was uh, a union organizer. That's when uh, he met my mother. Uh, you know, he got hired by the... Well, the communists were infiltrating the uh, the CEO, the uh, CIO, <laughs> the uh, you know the uh, Congress of Industrial Organizations. You know the AFL-CIO. The CIO was was uh, organizing factory workers, and so he was doing that in '48, maybe '47, '48, maybe, and then he got caught by the House on American Activities Committee. Then he uh, couldn't. Then he got fired by the union for being a communist. He was denounced by the House for uh, for being a communist. And then he uh, just worked in a um, machine shop for like six years and also got a master's in English, I think, at that time. And then he got blacklisted from uh, working in a machine shop. In other words, he had to sign a loyalty oath saying that he'd never been a communist which he couldn't do legally you know it's like a double bond if you if you sign it uh you can go to jail for perjury if you don't sign it you get fired 
So he ended up working with developmentally disabled adults in a, what they called a sheltered workshop. And that, that's what he did the rest of his life. He worked with, he worked his way up to actually the head really briefly was the head of this organization, the uh, uh, AHRC, the Association for the Help of Retarded Children, still has that name, that politically incorrect name. And, um, you know, he mostly eventually was the assistant director, but very briefly was the director. He got a PhD in psychology. And, you know, so he, he did a lot of good deeds when they deinstitutionalized the uh, the Willowbrook Center in Staten Island. He was part of the movement of bringing people out of institutions into group homes. So uh, he sort of helped organize a whole series of group homes. As my father says, used to say, uh, I am a footnote in history. Mm. Uh, that's wonderful. I don't know. My impression is that he might be one of the 36. Yeah, yeah he might be. Could be. Or, you know, he's becoming one if you can become one. His father was famously uh, one of the 36. He was? I mean, his father, you know, was like uh, widely believed by everyone that knew him to be a saintly figure. I mean, he was just a, you know, salesman of dresses. He was a women's, I mean, that he came from what's now Belarus. He came to the U.S., ended up in Scranton, Pennsylvania. He opened Gorelick's dress shop, eventually bought a building and uh, was something of a landlord. But, you know, he was just a kind hearted, good person who everybody who met him thought that he was a great soul. And uh, I think probably. Did you know I mean, him? Did you know I knew him well, yeah. Okay. I mean, he was, you know, he and his wife, actually, his wife was super kind to me, would wash my. Uh, his wife would wash my hair with uh, with shampoo and beer, and she would wash my sister's hair with shampoo and egg. <laughs> okay. Fantastic. She, you know, they were very loving there, to, to us. There is a lot of health flowing through your line, Sparrow. A lot of health. Yeah. These all sound like very healthy people. Yeah, there was something very healthy about them. And then my uncle, my father's brother, is, I think he's 95 now. He's not in the best of health, but he's doing pretty, doing better and better. Yeah, you you had suggested that he might be dying some weeks ago. I know, he seemed to be dying. And then, uh, but now they're totally shut down for uh, from yeah. coronavirus, that, that household. So I can't visit them, apparently. But uh, no, I think he made a... Uh, recovery you know i don't think he's still on oxygen last i heard i have to call my aunt wish her a happy new year but uh yeah he's uh, the the gorelics uh, have a great uh, power for life you know an attachment kind of i mean my dad keeps saying he thinks he's too old he thinks he should die he thinks it's sort of pointless to live this long but uh <laughs> You know, I tell him, uh, nobody wants you to die. People love you, you know. He's beloved in his building and he's beloved in the family. He's become this kind of what he wanted to be, you know. He wanted to be this sort of benevolent pater familis, however you say it, this kind of patriarch of the family, like spreading the doctrine of, you know, goodness to the world and of 
sharing and communitarianism, communism, as he understands it. You know, he's beautiful. It is kind of beautiful. I mean, yeah. you know, he regrets Stalin a little bit. He'll occasionally say something like he's a little embarrassed how much he worships it's Stalin. Hard not, it's hard not to regret Stalin. But and my father was telling the story. Did I tell this story here that like the day Stalin died, he was like devastated. The day which is the year I was born, fifty-three, and he just somehow knew to go down to Times Square where all the other communists would be. Somehow, ever they just had a homing mechanism that led them to to all be with each other and kind of mourn together. You know, they didn't know it was fifty-three. They didn't know that you know. Khrushchev denounced Stalin in 57, I think it's a famous... Yeah, famously, my godfather, Cord Meyer, had a copy, you know, before it was given, of Khrushchev's speech, and had come over ah. to dinner at my parents' house, and had a nice, you know, had a dinner party, and then left, huh. And the next morning came over and collected the speech because he'd left it in the uh, front hall. Oh, by mistake. Right. Huh. This is yeah. still before it was given? Yes. Huh. Yeah, huh. It was like top secret, you know. He was a CIA guy? Yes. Yeah, he uh -huh. was a CIA officer. Yeah, he was head of the World Federalists, which huh. was a movement that took off after the Second World War. He wrote a book called Peace and Anarchy. <laughs> and his understanding was the human race would not, would end, you know, with the arising of the atomic bomb and that it was necessary to form a world government and for the abolition of war. Oh, yeah, it's it like a, a big peace movement. Yeah. And then in 1950, huh. he came over to dinner at my <laughs> parents' house and he said, you know, it's time to man the barricades. <laughs> he said, against communism and joined the CIA. Oh, I see. So he was the first, he was a world federalist, then he joined the CIA. He started the world federalists, yeah. He was reputed to have been the, uh, in terms of intellect and uh, capacity to move in the world, the equal of <laughs> John F. Kennedy. Wow. Um, but then his path sort of, you know, disintegrated a little bit. But he was a very powerful cat, for sure. <sighs> but it was such an unhealthy time, retrospectively. What was his name? That time in the world um, and in America was a very toxic period. Coming out of the Second World War, you had a lot of damaged people. Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah. yeah. And, and no way to deal with it. Your father's path through it is very interesting and. And, you know, exemplary. Yeah, I mean, my dad was sort of lucky, I think, because he, I mean, according to him, because he was a communist in World War II, he was, he became a machinist, became a mechanic who fixed planes, airplanes for the Navy. The Navy has its own or had its own Air Force, the Naval Air Force. So he worked for them and did maintenance on airplanes. But supposedly, because he was a communist, he was never deployed. He never was sent overseas. Right. So he didn't see, you know, much. He wasn't that traumatized. Mostly yeah, he Cord just got Meyer, to Cord Meyer's brother, who was the really promising one in their family, 
died in the Pacific, and he himself lost one of his eyes. And he also had some problem with his shoulder. Like, he was badly damaged. Did you know him? He was my godfather. And you knew him, too. I mean, he could have died before you were two or something. No, no. He, he, um, you know, had a long career at CIA, and then he was a columnist for some time um, in various newspapers. Yeah. Sounds like an interesting person. Yeah, Yeah, he graduated with the highest grades that were ever given uh, at Yale. No, let's let's leave that out. I'm not sure about that. But he was he was a pretty bright guy. It's a good uh, what's the word urban legend, even if it's not true. Briefly, because we have a lot of material now, I think. Well, I mean, I, I there's one thing I didn't say, which is kind of a uh, a variant on what I said last time, but uh, it's kind of what we're doing a little bit in this uh, podcast. Oh, last yeah. time I was, I was talking about how depression is the feeling there's nothing to look forward to. Yes. And a person who's smart will give themselves a pleasure that they uh, can look forward to, you know, the next day or the next week. Right. But I was thinking like real health, absolute health, would be the opposite of the feeling of depression, the feeling that there's everything to look forward to. And uh, the rabbi at uh, the Woodstock Jewish congregation, he uses this term for God, which is life unfolding. Uh, I like that. I I sort of feel also the path of praise, Mm. um, of being in a state of praise is... Is also is is analogous to that, yeah. And also, I, I see a little bit, you know, like I've been reading these short stories by, as I said, by uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne, and you're reading a short story and you're like dying to know what's going to happen to this guy. This guy, what am I reading? My kinsman, Major Molly. No, it's about this guy who comes to this little sort of a small city in uh, New England in, let's say, the 1830s, and he's looking for his relative, Major Molyneux, and uh, he can't find him, and he's hungry, he's he's tired, he desperately needs to find him, but he doesn't know where he lives, and he's walking through the streets. It's just so exciting, like, what's going to happen to this poor kid? And, uh, and if you could have that sense about your own life, like, that you're you're in this story and you really don't know what the what's the next uh, event going to be in your story. You know, it's it's exciting. It's exciting not to know what the next turn of the plot is going to be. The one thing I didn't add is is health in terms of being sound. S O U N D. Its relationship mm. to that association of wellness and that we ourselves are a sonic medium. And I hope (laughs) that our podcasts are, you know, transmit health, frankly. Oh yeah. Yeah. Many thanks for joining us on this edition of baffling combustions and our ongoing investigation of the uncanny and wondrous. And please join us next time, and remember to stay tuned and strange.